Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 926. On this week's show, David Lorla has a pair of interviews with a pair of baseball authors. In the first half of the program, David is joined by Tim Neverett, broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers. They talk about what a wild year 2020 was for the Dodgers in particular, which Tim wrote about in his book, COVID Curveball. Tim shares some stories about Dodgers players like Kenley Jansen and Justin Turner and David Price, as well as some of the greats he gets to work with, like Oral Hershiser. Tim also breaks rule number one and talks about Joe Kelly Fight Club, before sharing what it was like to have the Astros come back to town. And I, In the book, I call it you know, the Flying Circus, because there were airplanes with signs being dragged behind them that were circling Dodger Stadium during the Astros' batting practice, that had derogatory messages about the Astros. After that, David welcomes author Dan Epstein, who recently wrote a book called The Captain and Me, on and off the field with Thurman Munson. Dan worked with Munson's teammate Ron Bloomberg to co-write the book, which sheds more light on the complicated life of the Yankees' captain. And so we wanted to work together to uh, kind of do a book that, that would show people 360 degrees of Thurman Munson, essentially. Right, the side that Carlton Fisk did not see. Right. <laughs> right. David and Dan also discuss the history of music and baseball and how baseball players always seem to want to be musicians, but musicians always seem to want to be baseball players. But before we get to these interviews, I must ask if you have considered a Fangraphs ad-free membership. They are truly the best way to support Fangraphs Audio, Fangraphs.com, and everything we do. Head on over to the merch page and check out our ad-free subs and everything else we have to offer. Thank you for all of your help. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Tim Neverett, broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I've been meaning to have Tim on as a guest for, for a little bit. And I think now is the perfect time because, Tim, you are not just a broadcaster. You are a newly published author. <laughs> that, yeah. That's pretty exciting. Uh, uh, thanks. I never thought I'd uh, hear that next to my name. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's a it was a kind of an interesting journey because we didn't know what was going on last year. Obviously once spring training was shut down in March and sometime during the shutdown and the, uh, the quarantine, uh, my wife and I were walking our dog in the mountains of New Hampshire, just staying away from people and thinking out loud, came up with the idea. Why don't I chronicle whatever type of season we have? Cause we just don't know. I, I thought that I would keep a day by day journal, write it in real time and uh, see what happens. And the fact that the Dodgers happened to be very good. And the fact that they won the world series uh, made it possible for me to get it published. And there's a lot of different stories in there, baseball stories from, from, you know, my perspective and uh, from other people's perspective, I think. But every game is chronicled throughout the course of the season. And, you know, I, I had written a column once for my hometown newspaper, but that was really the extent of the writing I've ever done. And so this is a real new journey for me, but uh, I'm hopeful that baseball fans will enjoy it. And you were very fortunate, of course, that the team did win the World Series, or at least advance. I know that some authors in the past have been snake button, snake bitten, easy for me to say, by agreeing to do books, and then the team actually underachieved. But the Dodgers in, you know, what was the craziest season, hopefully in our lives, actually did win the World Series. Yeah, it was a crazy season, you know, and we chronicle it from the time that we now know, okay, it's going to be a 60-game season. What's next? Reconvening for summer camp. 
what are the new normals as far as covering baseball? You know, and, and we hear from some of the people involved, uh, you know, manager Dave Roberts and Clayton Kershaw and others are quoted throughout the book. And, you know, as we move along, it was interesting to see exactly what the Dodgers did to follow Major League Baseball's protocols and then how they went over and above that because they felt that if they were going to win the whole thing, they needed to be extra careful. And they were until the sixth game of the World Series was when they uh, found out that they had a positive test, uh, fortunately an asymptomatic one, but either way positive and it, uh, it changed the narrative of how things ended in 2020. But I really believe that it was so different in so many ways and I wanted to chronicle that and kind of pull back the curtain to baseball fans and Dodger fans as to what had to go on behind the scenes to make sure there was a season, to make sure there were broadcasts, to make sure that the Dodgers did everything that they possibly could to stay healthy enough to finish out the season and win a World Series. And before we get to that craziness and those challenges, I think I should bring up to our listeners that Tim has, I guess, a history of bringing good fortune to baseball teams might be the best way of putting it. Tim, you joined the Pirates broadcast booth and I believe it was 2009. A few years later, they broke a two-decade playoff drought and had three straight playoff seasons. Then you went to Boston and worked for teams that made the playoffs and won a World Series. You leave Boston and go to L.A., well, bang, a couple more playoff teams, a World Series winner. If there are any contending teams out there who need a broadcaster, at which point Tim is no longer with the Dodgers, <laughs> I think people are going to be knocking on your door. Uh, you, you might want to uh, sign up to be my agent if you keep talking like that. I hope I'm with the Dodgers. I, I'd really like to stay here. It's a great situation, and this team is going to win. But, yeah, you know, right place, right time. I remember when I got to Pittsburgh in 2009, one of the first conversations I had was with uh, Greg Brown, who's uh, my fellow broadcaster there. And he said, you're coming to Pittsburgh at a good time. He said, I think they're going to get better. In the very next year, they got a lot worse in 2010. <laughs> It was, I think the only thing that saved the Pirates from losing 100 games was a rainout at Wrigley Field in Chicago where they were already losing. And both the Cubs and Pirates weren't in postseason contention, so they never made up the game. And they only played 161 that year, and they lost 99. But after that, they started to show some signs of improvement. Clint Hurdle came. He changed the culture. And then in 2013, I thought they had a really, really good chance to at least go to the National League Championship Series. They had two shots to win a game against the Cardinals in the Division Series. And the Cardinals got great performances by Michael Waka and then back home by Adam Wainwright and uh, put the Pirates to bed that year. But in 14, uh, the Giants came in and Madison Bumgarner had the great year and he shut them down in the wild card game. They went on to win the World Series. And then in 2015, I thought they had their best team in, in decades, perhaps. And they lost in the wild card to the Cubs when Jake Arrieta had his remarkable season. So, yeah, we saw some good years in Pittsburgh. And as soon as I left, I went to Boston. They were in the basement in 2015. And then I was there in 16, 17, and 18. They won the division all three years in the World Series in 18. Came to the Dodgers. They won the division uh, each year I've been here and back to the World Series last year and won it. Right. And of course, the Red Sox are rebounding from a horrible season last year. Pirates fans listening to this probably are looking back at that three-year run as being 
100 years ago. So things in Pittsburgh, despite the fact that Ben Sherrington is going to do a good rebuild, I know that things are, are a little rough over there. Tim, the Dodgers lost to the Astros in the World Series in seven games in 2017. I think it's safe to assume that Houston's visit to Dodger Stadium last year was covered in your new book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, COVID curveball, we talk about that because it was one of the most bizarre things ever. First of all, the season was bizarre world to begin with. It was like, you know, being in baseball's twilight zone. But when you had the Astros situation, when they were coming to Los Angeles to play in front of an empty stadium set up primarily of uh, flat cardboard cutouts and piped in crowd noise, you know, you, they figured they were pretty well safe. You know, they, they were going to avoid the wrath of the rabid Dodger fans. Well, they really didn't because a lot of Dodger fans, they, they know which gate the visiting team buses come in. They know where to find them and they waited outside. The Dodgers had to bring in extra security to keep people out of the stadium. They had extra security in the stadium during the games, now with no fans. And then uh, there were some enterprising fans, I guess, that and I, in the book I call it, you know, the flying circus because there were airplanes with signs being dragged behind them that were circling Dodger Stadium during the Astros batting practice that had derogatory messages about the Astros. And I'll tell you what, you know, one other thing that really struck me, granted, no fans in the, in the stadium to begin with, but this was the first time I had ever seen a police escort of a team's buses in the afternoon from the hotel to the ballpark. Now, are police escorts common in baseball? Certain teams, yes, when they are getting away on the last day of a series and they have to get to the airport, there's a police escort. We do it with the Dodgers. We did it with the Red Sox all the time. But not during a series, not for the afternoon buses that go from the hotel directly to the ballpark. And to see the Astros having to have a police escort in that situation, I can't even imagine what they're going to have to have this year when they come back to Dodger Stadium in August. Oh, man, <laughs> that will be something to see. Two-word question, Tim. Joe Kelly. Joe Kelly Fight Club. It went from Boston to Los Angeles. Joe was criticized some last year because he was criticized by some Houston players because they said, well, he had nothing to do with the 2017 World Series. And the first series that Joe pitched in against the Astros was early in the truncated season in Houston. He threw behind Alex Bregman. He threw behind Carlos Correa. They took exception. Uh, the benches emptied. And uh, I believe it was Correa afterward that, that said, you know, he had nothing to do with 2017. Well, Joe actually did, because what people forget is who Houston played in the American League playoffs in uh, 2017. It was Boston. And in game one, Chris Sale, who was having a marvelous season, his slider was unhittable. Well, it was uh, also unhittable against the Astros because they never took a swing at it because they knew it was coming. And Altuve hit three home runs in the game. They went back to back with Altuve and Bregman to start the first inning and Sale was shell-shocked. He couldn't figure it out because they were laying off the slider. So he had to throw a fastball and they just sat fastball the whole game. And when you look back, Joe Kelly came in in relief of Chris Sale in that game. So he felt like he was affected also in 2017. So he was not an innocent bystander. He was involved earlier in the postseason and, and that's all documented and uh, some numbers in there in the book as well. That is crazy stuff. We should circle back, Tim, to the Justin Turner situation. 
I believe that Walker Bueller plays a role in that. Yeah. So Justin Turner and his wife, Courtney, are great people. And Justin is a team leader. And Justin is very, very well liked everywhere he goes. What Justin and his wife were doing, they were trying to help go over and above Major League Baseball's protocols. In fact, there was a time during the season, Justin had texted us in the, in the broadcast media and said, can you spread the word that we are implementing additional protocols over and above what Major League Baseball has issued just to stay safe, just to be better off. And that's what they did. And as a result, they didn't get any negative tests. They stayed healthy because they knew they had a chance to win. Now, fast forward to game six of the World Series, Justin starts the game. And ironically, he lasts longer than Tampa starter Blake Snell in the game. Go figure. That's baseball <laughs> in 2020. But <laughs> he ends up coming in, coming out of the ball game. Walker Bueller was going to be the game seven starter. So just in case, he went down to the bullpen late. And he informs his bullpen mates down there, hey, you know, Turner just tested positive. And all the guys in the bullpen are laughing. They're going, yeah, right. Ha ha. Very funny. And then he points to third base and he says, look, he's not in the game. And Edwin Rios has manned third base in the seventh inning. And now they are pretty somber out there in the bullpen because, you know, Justin Turner's their guy. He's their leader. Now he's out of the ball game. And Walker Bueller gave them the, the information out there. And at first they thought Walker was kidding around, but uh, they found out he was serious. And then afterward, there's a lot of different stories about what happened and how Turner got back out on the field. But, you know, he was out there with the team to do whatever they could in terms of celebrating and then was not able to come back to Southern California with the team. He and his wife had to find their own transportation back. Yeah, unless I am mistaken, Tim, did Kenley Jansen actually test positive before the season? He did, He and his whole family. They, they all had it. And I think it affected Kenley you know, to a point where it took him a while before he could run the way that he was used to running and not be winded so much. But Kenley definitely was one of the positive cases. There were a number of them prior to the season beginning, and, and some players came in late to uh, what we're calling summer camp as a result of testing positive and then having to uh, go through the protocols and then test negative a couple of times before they could rejoin their teammates. Right. And David Price, of course, opted out. He did. He did show up first day when players were, were doing their intake. And apparently after that, he had, you know, consulted with his family. And, you know, you can never blame any player for making a decision like that. We're not in their head. We don't know what's going on with them personally or anybody in their family. We don't know if there's high risk people around them or not. We just don't know. So you can't blame anybody for, for opting out in that situation when they have the option to do so. So he decided to do it. And it would have been his first full year with the Dodgers and you know, having another Cy Young winner around wouldn't have been a bad thing. But the Dodgers, fortunately, were able to circumvent his absence and win the title anyway. And, you know, you tell these stories in the book. There are many stories, many more than we would, would cover here. But we should touch, Tim, on the difficulty of broadcasting during a pandemic season. And to a large degree, a lot of that has carried over to this year. Yes, it has. Uh, unfortunately, it has. But it was difficult, you know, and you had to do what you had to do last year. We got that. I was told by the Dodgers that Charlie Steiner, who has been the longtime uh, full-time radio announcer, was not going to do any games and that uh, I would do all 60 games with a caveat if all 60 games were played. There was not a lot of confidence that we were going to have a full season last year. So a couple of weeks before the season began, I was contacted again and said, 
Well, we figured it out where Charlie can do the game from his house. And you're still going to do some games. And you're going to do some television. You're going to do you know a few other things for us. So we need you to come out here anyway. So it was a difficult year. You relish the home games because there was actually baseball right in front of you. And you could watch the game. But it was weird. I think I said it was baseball's version of the Twilight Zone because you had uh, all of these cardboard cutouts, which from our perspective, we didn't see the faces of them. All we saw were these blank white uh, <laughs> you know, cutouts. Uh, that were sitting next to each other and we had over 10,000 of them at Dodger Stadium. We had to learn to watch everything off of multiple monitors and you still missed a lot. You still missed a lot of things. You missed the interaction with players, coaches, managers, other media members, uh, other folks you normally see at the other ballparks that help you do your job. And, you know, we still don't have that interaction because we're still not traveling and it, it's still a difficult way to broadcast and we're doing our very best Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we can't see everything. Sometimes the viewer at home is going, why didn't he say something about that? Well, because I didn't see it. <laughs> you know, we're at the mercy of the television director, whether it's the road team director, you know, for us. But at home, at least we can see everything. And now we have fans in the stands. So it's getting a little better. And I'm hopeful that uh, in the not too distant future, we'll be able to get back out on the road again and be able to do our jobs uh, the right way, be able to do our jobs to the best of our ability and start, you know, rekindling and maintaining and developing uh, the relationships that are so important to broadcasters in the world of baseball. No, amen. I think that a lot of listeners may realize this, but others may not. Just how difficult a job broadcasters have right now having to do games remotely rather than being at the ballpark. And you do it well. You know, I've listened to a few Dodger games on my phone. You know, Joe Davis, Rick Monday, Charlie, Oral. There's some pretty good broadcast teams in L.A. right now. Well, thank you very much. And it's, it's wonderful to work with them. And uh, had the pleasure on Sunday of doing television with uh, Nomar Garciaparra, too, who's great. And he always brings up something that you never know. That's the, the great thing about him. And working with Oral Hershiser is great. In fact, Oral wrote the foreword for the book, uh, COVID Curveball, and, and does a great job, I think, in terms of bridging the 1988 championship with the 2020 championship. And he takes us inside his mind as to what was going through it when he was ready to record the final out against the Oakland A's in 1988 and the chaos that ensued. And then he takes us to 2020. It's a pretty in-depth forward by Oral Hershiser. And I was really fortunate that that Oral was so interested in the project and wanted to do it. He did a great job with it. You know, and being around Rick Monday a lot, I do a lot of radio too. And being around him is wonderful. He's got great stories, great insight. He's ultra prepared every game. And that helps that in our situation now where we're limited uh, due to COVID and the fact we're not traveling, having a guy like Rick Monday next to me, you know, is wonderful and a big help. So, you know, I'm very fortunate I get to work with some great broadcasters here. And you mentioned Nomar. I live in Boston. I have for a few decades. You grew up in the area. So you probably remember the uh, Nomar's better chance whenever Derek Jeter would step to the plate at Fenway. Yeah, I do. I do. And, and Nomar is such a good sport. And, you know, when he talks about living in Boston and you know, the time, you know, he lived in Charlestown. I don't know if people know this or not, but uh, the locals there that knew him considered him a townie. So all he had to do was wear a green shamrock on his shirt and he was fine, he told me. But, uh, but he enjoyed his time living in Charlestown and down by the water and really, really loved his time in Boston. He's got so many fond stories of, of playing at Fenway Park and, and I love sitting down and listening to them. 
Yes. And while longevity wise, Jeter was better, I think it is accurate that at his prime, <laughs> Nomar was better. Tim, we are out of time, but I want to hit you with one more question, given that the title of your book is COVID Curveball. How is your curveball? My curveball has a high spin rate. <laughs> My curveball is, is no good anymore. Not like it was when I was in school, but I didn't pitch very much. But I think that people read this book, David, they'll get an idea of what it took to win a world championship. They'll get a, an idea of what it took to broadcast games. They'll hear some stories that have never been heard before, never been told before. Uh, there's some things in there about Alex Cora and Mookie Betts that uh, were personal to me that no one ever, I've never said on the air before. And, you know, again, the, the great forward by Oral Hershiser. But it's a, you know, it's available right now on Amazon for pre-sale and the release date is in later August. But I think that baseball fans everywhere will get a different view of what going through a baseball season was like going through it with the Dodgers in 2020. For sure. You know, Tim, with your high spin curveball, an author next to your bio now, thank you very much for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. David, always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for having me on today. Welcome back. Once again, this is David Lorla. That didn't change while you were listening to the interlude. My guest on this segment is Dan Epstein. Dan was actually penciled in for next week's show, but due to a, a scheduling issue, I asked Dan on very short notice, I think it was about half an hour, <laughs> if, if he could record today. So Dan, thank you for coming on on oh, my ha pleasure, half David. an hour. Hey, thank you for, for inviting me. It actually worked out uh, perfectly. No, perfect. We don't get perfect very often, at least not in the last year, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so treasure it where you may find it. For sure. I am sure that many of you listening uh, are familiar with Dan's work. He's written extensively, not only on baseball, but also music and culture. Big Hair and Plastic Grass is on my short list of favorite baseball books. And there is now a new book out that I have not had a chance to read yet. So let's start with that, Dan. Sure, absolutely. The new book is actually my first collaboration. I collaborated uh, with Ron Bloomberg on a book called The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. And uh, for those who may not remember, uh, Ron was a first baseman and outfielder and, of course, designated hitter for the Yankees during the first half of the 1970s. And, and he and Thurman Munson were, were best pals when during their Yankee days. And we wrote this book to kind of give people a little more insight into who Thurman actually was, because the I think that the picture that, that certainly the media in the 70s painted and has pretty much uh, stayed with him, you know, 40 plus years after his death was that Thurman was a really kind of gruff and unpleasant person. But he, there was as great a ball player he as he was, uh, he had a reputation for being, you know, really kind of an unpleasant person. And so we really wanted, you know, Ron saw a much or really several different sides to him. And so we wanted to work together to uh, kind of do a book that, that would show people 360 degrees of Thurman Munson, essentially. Right, the side that Carlton Fisk did not see. 
Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, as I've said, this, this book would make a great, a great Father's Day gift, unless, of course, your father is a huge Carlton Fisk fan, in which case uh, uh, you probably should pick something else. Yes, yeah, some of our younger listeners may not know that. But if you remember the Jason Veritek putting his glove in A-Rod's face, Fisk Munson was somewhat similar and maybe just a little bit more aggressive or violent back, yeah, in, back and, in the day. And, and I think the case could be made, and, and Ron talks about it in the book, that this was, that, that the Fisk-Munson thing was really, that, that really lit the fuse of the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry as we know it today. You know, that obviously the two teams had been rivals for, for many decades before that, but that kind of intensity, that, that kind of like, you know, full on hatred for each other, that really starts with, uh, with uh, Thurman Munson and Carlton Fisk in, in the early 70s. Yeah, and my memory isn't isn't great on this, but I don't know if uh, Greg Nettles destroying Bill Lee's uh, pitching shoulder happened in, in that same game, or if that was a different different game. That was a different game. That was in '76, but that was part of the whole thing because you know the the Yankees really, especially hated Fisk, and it was it was Pinella who collided with Fisk at the plate, and that's in that game, and that's how that started. But you know there there was a lot of bad feeling between those two teams uh as as ron says in the book really the only the only guy on the red sox that the yankees liked was louis tiant because how could you not like louis tiant which i think is uh you know is makes a lot of sense and and uh and in fact tiant and thurman wound up together for a year on uh the yankees in 79 and and uh tiant you know was obviously has been very praiseful of carlton fisk's abilities but but it said that that you know uh, if it if it had to come down to one catcher to pitch to he would he would have picked Thurman and Tiat of course right in the in the Thurman Munson category of you know this guy probably should be a hall of famer but there exactly. are arguments and but there are arguments against for both it's you know Jay Jaffe should actually be on this segment to be discussing that with us right now <laughs> he should well because I know especially because I know he's on the same side as me on this uh, you know I I find arguments about who should be in the hall of fame generally pretty tiresome because I've, I'm a big hall guy. I think if, if a person made, you know, great contributions to the game, they should be in. It does. I don't think it, it comes down to the hard and fast or it should come down to hard and fast numbers. And I feel like people who, who feel who are really, really into the hard and fast numbers have control issues in other areas of their life that they're allowing to seep into their uh, their thinking about uh, about baseball and baseball history. But that said, I do think that, thir- you know, you look at what Thurman did for the Yankees in the 1970s and his career ended, uh, you know, obviously unexpectedly and prematurely in a plane crash. But if you if you if you look at his stats in the 1970s and you look at what he meant for the Yankees, as a captain, as a leader, as a handler of pitchers, as as a guy who, you know, came through in the postseason for them. What else would you want him to do in that period? I mean, it, it's really like like oh, what he wasn't great enough uh, during the seventies. So that that's yeah. So I I feel like he Tiant, Dick Allen, Dave Parker. Those those are my four guys who should uh, who you know who who should be in there and are not. 
Yeah, Dwight Evans is on on my list as, as well. Very sure. qu- quietly a great player. Dan Ron Bloomberg is of course you know uh, key to the book. I I guess you you could say that his name is on the cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you didn't mention earlier that Bloomberg was the first ever designated hitter in nineteen right. seventy three. I'm trying to recall now who some of the other firsts were on that that same day. I I believe. Orlando Cepeda must have been one. Well, he w- and and what's interesting is that the Yankees and the Red Sox were were playing each other at Fenway that day, and ah. or- Orlando should have been the first DH because he was you know he was scheduled to bat in the bottom of the first. But Louis Tiant, who was actually pitching for the Red Sox that day, was pretty wild. I mean, it was it was like thirty seven degrees and you know miserable April Fenway day, and he was having trouble finding the plate. So Ron, who was penciled in seventh in the batting order, actually came up in the first inning, the first uh, first player to hit officially as a DH in a, in a major league, in an official major league game. You know, but but if, if Tiant had been able to find the strike zone, uh, it would have been Cepeda. Right. I believe Bloomberg walked. Is that correct? With the bases loaded. Oh, not Louis's uh, finest day. No, although the Red Sox did come back to to win fifteen to five. So, I mean, and and that was you know we talk about this in the book, like how you know Ron was kind of swarmed at his locker afterwards by reporters, and you know which seemed so strange because they'd just been blown out by the Red Sox, and here are all these these beat writers who want to talk to Ron about how his bat is going to Cooperstown, and Ron actually has uh, has his bat and I think his shoes in Cooperstown, whereas, uh, you know, Thurman is still uh, still outside looking in, so that's right. kind of ironic. Right, as is Louie, of course. Yeah, right. what? how does Ron look back at, at that game? I suppose, had he not been the first DH, he is a name that almost nobody today would re- recall. Yeah, I mean, I think he's proud of that contribution, although he looks at it with a grain of salt, a sense of humor, however, however you want to put it. I mean, he, he realizes that, like, you know, he basically got lucky. And, and also, I mean, to hear him talk about it, like, the designated hitter, like players didn't really understand what it was or how it was going to impact the game long term. They thought it was an experiment that might be used for a season or two, and then that would be it. In fact, when when Ron walked uh, in his first time up in that game, he you know he went to first and was was stranded there, and then he was waiting at first for somebody to toss him his glove because he was so used to being, you know, playing first base. And I believe it was uh, Felipe Alou was playing first base and came out and was like, what are you doing here? You have to go to the bench. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think if you're a Yankee fan of a, if you're a Yankee fan of a certain age, you remember Ron because Ron was really the Yankees first Jewish star. And so there was a that was a big deal when he was signed out of high school in the 60, in, I think 66 or 67. And then when he, he kind of came up with the team in 71, he was sort of an instant sensation because, well, A, there wasn't a whole lot else about the Yankees to get excited about that season, but also just like, you know, how the Yankees had never had a, a Jewish player before, at least not one who was, you know, played every day. So uh, he immediately became extremely popular in the city. And I think he was like voted most popular athlete in New York City two years in a row. And and uh, but unf- and he was a tremendously talented hitter and and had good speed for a while. But unfortunately, 
you know, he was one of those guys who just kept getting injured. And, you know, 75, it's really middle of 75, he, he uh, injured his shoulder. And then it was just a series of like really nasty injuries that had him on the DL with the Yankees for literally two and a half seasons. And one of the things we talk about in the book, which, you know, I thought, again, this was one of those things that, that you know, shed new light on who Thurman was as a person, was that, you know, in all that time that, that Ron was really struggling to, to kind of, you know, get himself together physically and get back out on the field, uh, which, you know, he wanted to do more than anything, a lot of his teammates kind of abandoned him, uh, which I think is not uncommon for in professional sports, professional team sports, where, you know, a guy is injured and can't make contributions. After a while, you get kind of sick of seeing him in the whirlpool because you want to be in that whirlpool and you're making, you know, you're out on that field every day. And, why, you know, why is this guy getting all the attention? So, uh, but Thurman was one of the few players on the team who really kind of stuck stuck by Ron, stuck up for him, uh, you know, was, would, would go into the trainer's room every day and talk to him and try to, you know, keep him from getting, you know, too down in the dumps and, and kind of raise his spirits and convince him that, man, you know, you're going to be back out there. You're going to help us win. Like, don't give up, Bloomy. And that if, if, you know, if you had told me back in the seventies, when, you know, I was first learning about baseball and I was a huge Thurman Munson fan and, you know, the, that would have been a side of him I just would not have realized existed. You know, I thought he was just like, you know, this gruff, uh, hard-nosed, on-the-field leader, but who basically said one, maybe two-word answers to reporters and really didn't care about people. And uh, really, that, that that's far from the truth. He was actually a very caring and loyal person to to the people he, he felt were his friends, and, and Ron Bloomberg was one of them. Yeah, reporters do not like one and two word answers. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's jump back and segue at the same time, Dan. Uh, you know, April 1973 is when Bloomberg started out as a DH and broke that in. I had basically five minutes time, if that, to prepare for our conversation, <laughs> but but I did spend thirty seconds of that looking up what the music charts look like in in April 73. Ah, okay. Well, do you want to take any wild guesses? And oh, to what, what the number one song may have been? April 73. This um, is definitely putting you on the spot. This is. But if anybody can answer this, it, it's, you're probably the man. The 70, it's weird. It's like 73 is one of those years that like I'm real hazy on, on the AM charts. It's like if you ask me, you know, if you ask me number one songs from the spring of 74, I could probably nail it. Probably spring of 72, but 73 is like a... I am going uh, 73. I'm just going to make a wild guess and say that some it was something by the spinners. It was not. I didn't notice if they were in the charts or not. The number one song here in the U.S. was The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia Ooh. by Vicki Lawrence. You know, yes. there's, there, there's maybe a uh, 2021 all-star tie-in to there you wanna, <laughs> if you want to think about it. <laughs> Especially when you 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 think about the what the song itself and not just the title. Yeah, no, that that that, that I mean that there were so that was an interesting time to be a kid and and be listening to the radio because there were all all these like kind of story songs like that where you're just kind of like you know kind of adult subject matter but not fully explained and sort of you know i would have been seven in the spring of 73 and i'm sure i heard it and wondered what the hell is all this about but being drawn in just the same 
Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly from looking at this about 20 minutes ago, I think the Sweets Little Willie was somewhere on the charts as well. And I think a lot of adults listening to that were probably wondering or having no idea what uh, they were actually singing about. (laughs) (laughs) British slang being a little bit different than U.S. slang. (laughs) Which reminds me completely, well, on the subject of Willies, I remember years ago when when the film Free Willie was in theaters, I, I read a mention of it in a British magazine, which referred to it as the worryingly titled Free Willy. So it always stuck with me. Sure. Yeah. Killing Me Softly with his song, Roberta Flack, Flack, was high on the charts, as was Stevie Wonder's You Are the Sunshine of the Okay. All right. Yeah. That now it's now it's kind of coming into into focus. Yeah. You know, and and, and we talk about this in the book, actually, uh, not those songs per se, but there there is a big music component to the captain and me as well. The Thurman and Ron were close friends with Nat Tarnapol, who was the president of Brunswick Records. And which was a big soul label in the early 70s. And so they would hang out at Nat's office a lot. And, you know, guys like from the Shylights uh, and, and, and other groups that were on Brunswick would like come in and they'd all hang out with uh, with Ron and Thurman. And Nat would take Thurman and Ron up to up to the uh, Apollo in Harlem to you know, see various uh, soul artists. And, and again, this is this is not not what I imagined Thurman Munson doing in his in his free time. But, but Ron apparently was a big soul music fan from his days growing up in Georgia. He, he went to see Otis Redding and James Brown and and Joe Tex and all those cats. And uh, so he, he really he was really into to you know, going to the Apollo and 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 kind of turning Thurman on to soul music. Thurman was more of a, he was more into kind of like Creedence Clearwater Revival and uh, Allman Brothers and and actually the Doobie Brothers who had an album called The Captain and Me, which uh, was one of Thurman's faves. And so that's that's kind of where I, I lifted the title for the book from. Oh, fantastic. I would not have thought to ask you that. But no, the, the music baseball thing is, I think you know this very well. All baseball players seem to want to be musicians and vice versa. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's and, and and I think you look at just about, you know, you go back several decades and, you you know, you had guys like Tony Canigliaro writing songs and, and, you know, Alice Cooper was a huge baseball fan. And, you know, it, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a long running overlap. Yeah. Speaking of Alice Cooper, I was once riding in a pickup truck. Uh, I believe I was still in high school. Uh, We probably had adult beverages illegally. (laughs) And we were listening to the radio and the disc jockey happened to say, there's only one person in the world who drinks more beer than Alice Cooper. And the other person in the truck who was driving happened to reach over and change the station for some reason, right at that moment. So I've never heard the answer. (laughs) Who that would be. For sure. Yeah, yeah. One other thing from from my end, Dan, I had a chance to talk to George Thorogood a few years back. He was playing at the House of Blues in Boston. And a friend of mine who is in the music business said, hey, do you want to go over, you know, and talk to him before the show and then stick around? So I said, sure. So we're backstage and, you know, my friend is also big into baseball. And when George learned that I was a baseball writer, he peppered me with baseball trivia questions for, <laughs> for half, half an hour straight. Amazing. In, in an absolute manic state. Just the same energy that you would get 
on stage from George Thorogood was him asking baseball trivia questions. <laughs> uh, I, I believe it. I mean, uh, I never interviewed Doug Somm, but I, I've heard that he was, you know, very much the same way that that was sort of like the way to break the ice if you were interviewing him was to talk baseball first. And and I saw him with the Texas Tornadoes, I guess it would have been like 1990, 91, uh, playing at the Cubby Bear, which is a venue right across the street from Wrigley Field in Chicago. And between songs, like all he would do is like riff the Cubs and and Wrigley and be like, man, it's it's so great to play here, you know, where where Ernie Banks and and Hank Bauer and, and just just like you know just run this whole litany of of Cubs player names, even ones who were only with the Cubs briefly, and uh, you know he was he was completely pumped up by that. I did not know that about Doug Som. Yeah. Am I correct that his son is a drummer? Yeah, Shandon. I believe played for the Meat Puppets, correct? Yeah, that that's that is that is correct. Yeah. I believe I saw them. I thought uh, I didn't know who he was when I looked at him, but I thought you know that kid looks like a a young Iggy Pop. He has <laughs> the, the long straight hair and the lean muscular body. Yeah, he, I think he uh, he is uh, one of Doug's sons. Sean is also a musician, uh, played guitar in his band for a while. And I might be mixing the Shandon and Sean up, but I know they're they're both quite talented players in their own right. And you are a talented author, Dan. So let's, as we're running out of time, let's close by you saying a little bit about big hair and plastic grass. Because uh, when I said earlier that it's one of my favorite baseball books, I, it was saying that in all sincerity. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's. I mean, it was a book that you know, it's it's a book that that looks year by year at uh, baseball in the nineteen seventies, uh, kind of all the all the changes, all the characters, uh, you know, all the highlights. Uh, from that decade. And I, I just, you know, I've just always felt be, before I wrote that book that the that the 70s uh, in baseball never really got the respect they deserved, that they're sort of like looked upon as this weird aberrational era. And and to me, that's what was cool about them and, and not something to be ignored or clutch your pearls over. So that's, so that's kind of, you know, it's kind of like my, my tribute to that era. And then I, I wrote a book after that called Stars and Strikes, which takes the same approach, but specifically zeroes in on the 76 season. And and so there's, you know, in, in both books, there's a lot of overlap between baseball and pop culture and music. And, you know, because I don't believe that baseball happens in a vacuum, that that there are a lot of cultural forces that, that shaped the game as well as, you know, f- uh, forces of the game itself during the 70s. And uh, with Stars and Strikes, I was able to to kind of like focus in on on you know include a lot more stories, even though the even if they weren't the big ones, say they were you know the ones that meant a lot to me, so or, or that I found particularly interesting or humorous. So those those are the two baseball books I've written before the Captain and Me, and uh, hopefully there there will be others. And hopefully there will be. In closing here on my end, too, I'm realizing that I should have Steve Wynn or Linda Pittman on the pod someday. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Aside from great musicians and great folks, they are, you know, they really know their stuff baseball-wise. So you you would have a lot of fun with them. Right. They are, of course, two of the members of the baseball project, who uh, it's wonderful music, Dan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, (laughs) you know, and, and frankly, like, I've often felt that, baseball and music, although there is that overlap, 
a lot of songs about baseball are really lame. You know, it's, it's the way that a lot of films about baseball are really lame. Like there's something that doesn't quite translate. And I think one of the great things about the baseball project is that, you know, they write these songs about players, about, you know, incidents that happen and, and they do it, you know, as fans with a good sense of history, but the songs are so themselves are so good that it, it works. Agree. There, there are not many. Yeah. A song that maybe a lot of listeners are not familiar with that fits that category, which is Barbara Manning and SF Seals' Doc Ellis. Yes, that's a, a brilliant. That's, and, and of course, the, the baseball project uh, have a song about Doc as well. Uh, about, uh, I'm forgetting the title, but it's 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 about the incident where he he tried to bean four four straight Cincinnati Reds batters in a game in 74. I believe he was successful, was he not? He was, I think, some maybe it was Tony Perez managed to keep jumping out of the way, but at which point, you know, that was that was ball four, and and Perez uh, walked with the bases loaded. At, at which point, Danny Murtaugh pulled Doc from the game. But if Perez hadn't been so light on his feet, he might have gotten four straight. And I think that is a perfect segue here for us having going over time. So Dan, thank you once again for uh, David uh, for total, coming on. Total pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Okay, and thanks everybody for listening to uh, Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed the program. Thank you to Tim Neverett and Dan Epstein for joining us. Make sure to check out that Fangraphs merch page, as well as our newsletter. It's a great way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.